Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. <laughs> Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at American liberalism and its challenges from the 1960s to the end of the 1990s through the prism of the political career and presidency of Bill Clinton. And we'll be debating whether it should be viewed as a success or a failure. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Tonight's show is on the presidency of Bill Clinton and the challenges to American liberalism from the 1960s to the end of his presidency in 2000. The election of Bill Clinton in 1992 ended 12 years of Republican rule and seemed poised to enact a progressive transformation of the US economy, touching everything from healthcare to trade to labour relations. My fellow citizens, today we celebrate the mystery of American renewal. This ceremony is held in the depth of winter. But by the words we speak and the faces we show the world, we force the spring. A spring reborn in the world's oldest democracy that brings forth the vision and courage to reinvent America. When our founders boldly declared America's independence to the world and our purposes to the Almighty, They knew that America, to endure, would have to change. Not change for change's sake, but change to preserve America's ideals, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Though we march to the music of our time, our mission is timeless. Each generation of Americans must define what it means to be an American. Yet, by the time he left office, America's economic and social policies had instead lurched dramatically rightward, exacerbating inequalities. And so in tonight's show, we want to debate whether Clinton's expansive agenda was a failure and we want to examine what was its legacy. So it's an examination of the presidency of Bill Clinton through that prism of American liberalism. We'll be looking at domestic policy, the economy. We won't be focusing on foreign policy and triumphs like the Good Friday Agreement. But I'll be offering a new perspective on American liberalism and the presidency of Bill Clinton. And to do so, I'm delighted to be joined by a brilliant panel of experts. They gathered in Trinity in early June for a major conference on American liberalism. And so I'm delighted to welcome Professor Nelson Lichtenstein, Research Professor in History at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's an expert on labour and American politics and his new book, A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism, will be published by Princeton. University this September. Dr. Daniel Geary is Mark Piggott Associate Professor in American History at Trinity College Dublin and is a leading expert on the intellectual, political and cultural history of the 20th century United States. And he was the organiser of the annual lecture in American History delivered in Trinity in June, delivered by Professor Lichtenstein. Professor Patricia Sullivan is William Arthur Ferry II Professor of History at the University of South Carolina and is an expert on modern US history with an emphasis on the American-African experience, politics, race relations and the history of the civil rights movement. And her most recent book is Justice Rising, Robert Kennedy's America in Black and White. Professor Mary Ellen Curtin lectures at the American University in Washington, D.C. and is an expert on modern African-American and women's social and political history. And she's the author of Black Prisoners and Their World and is currently working on a new biography of Texas Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. And that will be published by the University of Pennsylvania Press next year. Well, as I say, you are all very welcome. Well, Nelson, I might begin tonight's discussion with you and maybe the title of your book, A Fabulous Failure, because I know, I think a 
couple of people referred to uh, the 1990s as a fabulous decade. But is is your use of that title, you know, reflecting that and also perhaps that President Bill Clinton's time in office was seen as a, a failure for liberalism? Well, yes. Well, the, 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 let's, let's take that. The fabulous and then the failure. The fabulous uh, comes from two places. One was uh, Janet Yellen uh, and uh, others wrote a, wrote a little short book. Uh, she's currently Secretary of Treasury in the U.S. called uh, The Fabulous Decade, which was uh, touting the fact that uh, unemployment was low and uh, uh, general prosperity was high during the 1990s. That was one of the main things that Clinton was proud of. Uh, the fabulous also is that um, Clinton himself and, his, and the people, some of the people around him were quite, uh, uh, you know, exciting initially. And 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 he was he he was the first Democratic president really since uh, for twelve years, and, and really the, the the only Democratic president who'd been reelected since Franklin Roosevelt. So that that seemed to give that a, a kind of a certain cachet there. Um, however, I think both in popular sentiment in the United States uh, and and among uh, historians. Uh, the Clinton presidency has been accounted a, a failure in many respects. Even even the prosperity seemed to lead to to bubbles and busts and all sorts of things of that sort. So, and I think one of the things that I try to do in my book is to show both the uh, there was a certain progressive promise uh, of of Clinton and, and the people around him, and then I think it's important to understand the 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 nature of that promise, what they thought they could do, and then what what happened, the obstacles, why in fact in that particular era, that's now 30 years ago, uh, they faced so many difficulties and, and ultimately most of, many of his major initiatives uh, uh, failed. And those things which succeeded, <laughs> uh, like the deregulation of, of, of finance, uh, created enormous problems and they ended up also a, a failure. So that's part of what I'm trying to do in the book and what I hope people will find interesting. And is the secret really the fact that, as you mentioned there, the Democrats had been out of the White House for 12 years and therefore people like Bill Clinton were determined to to make whatever compromises or decisions were necessary to win? Yeah, look, he's a politician, absolutely. So uh, he's a uh, an opportunist in, in perhaps uh, the, the, the best sense of the word. What, what are, what's possible? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll seize that opportunity. What isn't, I'll be totally cynical about it. And he certainly could be a cynic and could be could disappoint many of his followers on on many questions. Uh, but yes, he. I think the people around him said, look, this is our best shot. Uh, it's really been more than, more than 12 years. I mean, uh, Carter was considered a failed president as well. Really, we have to go back to the Great Society. He was the first sort of at least ostensible liberal since then. Now, Clinton has been saddled to some degree uh, correctly and, and, and in some ways un- as sort of, you know, the day he walked into the White House, he was a neoliberal. He was a kind of a a conservative creature of Wall Street, and 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 I, I don't think that's correct. I think that 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 it's important to show how that happened, what what happened to him. But the day he walked in, he was not a, com- a complete figure. He was not the figure that that is actually uh, uh, to to a degree. Currently, uh, the Clintons are sort of demonized, not just on the right, <laughs> but on the left as well in American politics and culture. And in that second campaign in 1996, you know, the phrase, tri- the word triangulation was used a lot. And there was this sense, and it linked in with Tony Blair and the third way, that yeah. by steering this kind of middle path, it was essentially selling out principles that it, you were guided by, well, political expediency. Yeah. I mean, the phrase third way did only, it came out of the, uh, actually, out of Britain, uh, Tony Blair. The, the the Clintonites loved Tony Blair because unlike Bill Clinton, Blair had a gigantic majority in Parliament. They said, ah, this shows that some, maybe in, in one country anyway, our ideas are really working. Um, but the, the phrase, yeah, third way or, or triangulation uh, was a product of defeat, really the defeat that Clinton had experienced uh, in, the, in his first term and really the first half of his first term. And after the Republicans come in, he felt that, you know, uh, again, he, again, He's, he's a politician. I want to get reelected. Uh, you know, there's some virtues in being reelected, appointments and whatnot. Uh, and so uh, I will make cut deals with the Republicans, and uh, which which is what which is what that was all about. So the phrase triangulation comes in not in 1992 or three, but only in 1996. And, and then the third way phrase again, not not early, but uh, but really once Blair comes in. 
and it's funny, but we kind of remember it. We project yes. it backwards, and it becomes uh, that's correct emblematic of the entire. No, it is fascinating. And Mary Ellen, do you think there's maybe a, an issue when we when we look at some of these candidates that we project our own aspirations on them and our own dreams, and that you know we we idealize them in a certain way at the start, and then if they don't live up to that, well, then they must bear the price. And I think you know President Obama, you know, had a, a similar problem. Uh, yes. Absolutely. And uh, certainly black voters, you know, it's kind of interesting because there was a lot of initial enthusiasm for Clinton. Jesse Jackson had succeeded in registering millions of new black voters in the 80s, right? So during this period of Reagan and conservatism, you do have some kind of surge of interest in politics, largely through the Jackson campaign. And initially, you know, Jackson had invited Clinton to come. This is one of his first campaign stops in the early 90s. And uh, Clinton, of course, as Nelson was saying, is uh, aware that he needs the black vote, but he also needs these Reagan Democrats. So he does something. He uh, condemns a very popular uh, music star, Sister Soldier, and uh, as a way of showing that he's not beholden. So it, it's a kind of a um, black voters are trapped. But they do come out for Clinton, but not in the same, like, low 80 percent. Like, uh, Gore gets a higher percentage of the black vote. But, you know, Clinton sort of stays in the low 80 percent of the black vote. It's necessary, and he, and he needs it. But um, I think they're kind of, there's a, a degree of skepticism there, almost from the, from the start. But there's an acknowledgement that he's our, you know, we need him. Like, he's better than, than Reagan, right? And we need a Democrat in office. So I think uh, black voters are certainly not, in, you know, super enthusiastic, but they're sort of practical. They're practical, too. Tony Morrison famously or infamously mm. described him as the first black yeah. uh, president. That became a problematic phrase. I think it was 1998. It's, but but it, it's true. I mean, he is he is comfortable in black churches, for example. And I think uh, there was a surge of support for him after the Monica Lewinsky uh, scandal. But again, you know, in those midterms in 96, there was a lot of opportunity there um, at, at a state level for uh, black, you know, um, Harvey Gantt, you know, for the Senate and things in those seats. And there was opportunity also for uh, black members of Congress. If they had been able to hold, get the majority, they could have been chairs of very important committees. And so, you know, that lack of a surge in, uh, in the black vote in those midterms, it was important for Clinton, you know, to be elected. But it, he wasn't able to, sust- you know, to sustain that interest um, over time. It's really unfortunate. And Dan, it is fascinating when you look at maybe the challenges that liberalism faced from the 60s on. And, you know, Mary Ellen mentioned Reagan there and he did loom so, so large in the 80s. His vice president, George Bush Sr., succeeded him. And th- those 12 years, I think they posed a significant set of challenges for, for people who described themselves as progressive like Bill Clinton did. Absolutely. And I mean, Reagan's overwhelming victory in the 1984 election, especially uh, Reagan's success in cutting uh, America taxes, you know, uh, very, very significant achievement. Well, we began to carry a message to every corner of the nation, a simple message. The message is here in America, the people are in charge. But it's important to remember that uh, Reagan was stymied at various moments by liberals in Congress. Uh, the Democrats, uh, for, for most of the Reagan presidency, had control of uh, Congress. And there was even sort of a revival in Congress of uh, liberalism. And under uh, George Bush, uh, President Bush, there were some several actual liberal victories. There was a Civil Rights Act passed in 1991. There was the Americans for Disabilities Act. There was the Clean Air Act. Uh, so even though Reagan was obviously a very popular figure, the Reagan's conservatism wasn't always uh, as popular. In fact, polls uh, showed that uh, Reagan's, you know, sort of ideological outlook was always significantly less popular than Reagan's own personal popularity. So while there were certainly challenges to, to liberals in uh, Reagan's victories, uh, they also had possibilities to to check what the conservatives tried to do and to even make uh, advances during the Reagan-Bush years. And Dan, do you think that liberalism was in decline from the 1960s following, you know, Richard Nixon's victory in the 1968 election, you know, uh, following on from the assassination of of Bobby Kennedy in in 63 of John F. Kennedy, that there does seem to be a suggestion that liberalism was was in difficulty? Well, I certainly think that liberalism is in crisis during that period. There's no doubt about that. 
But, you know, again, uh, if you were to look uh, not simply at the presidential level, but at the congressional level, at the state and the local level, in many ways, liberalism is uh, thriving. I mean, in, in 1972, the Democrats nominate by far their most liberal candidate in history, George McGovern. Mm -hmm. And even though he goes on to lose, it's not necessarily because of his uh, liberalism that he loses. There are many strategic errors that are made uh, along the way. But it also shows that, that liberals actually have uh, more control of the Democratic Party than they did before. McGovern's a far more liberal figure than uh, Lyndon Johnson was, for example. Very good. And uh, what about maybe if we return to the Clinton presidency, Patricia, something like the crime bill in 1994? That's something that looms so large now when, when people try and evaluate just how progressive uh, Bill Clinton was. Uh, it had certain things that were positive, but other things like the mass incarceration and the three strikes that did seem to be just have huge repercussions and a hugely negative impact on American society. Tremendously so. You know, the decade starts out with uh, Rodney King and, and what happens in Los Angeles. So the problem of policing in urban communities, poor urban communities, uh, is, is huge and enduring. And the crime bill just sort of leans into that issue of crime and dealing with crime in such a punitive way of, you know, increasing policing, uh, and three strikes and you're out for, you know, uh, committers of, of violent crimes. Um, one strike and you're out, tossed out of public housing if you're, you know, involved with uh, accused of criminal activity. So it's, um, yeah, it, it, it really appeals to um, that fear uh, and prejudice and has a tremendous impact on not just black Americans, but mostly, you know, African Americans. And we see from, like, the late 60s onward, the rise in incarceration, um, which expands under Clinton. I mean, he sort of follows through Nixon, Reagan, Bush. So it's, uh, no, it's in 94 devastating, I think. And what was the motivation for it? Because it does go back to the 1992 campaign. And I think Clinton was determined to show that they weren't soft on crime and that they were, you know, going to be, you know, a perceived weakness of the Democratic Party could be actually turned into a strength. Right. I mean, during his campaign for president, he returns to Arkansas to be there for the Ricky Ray Rector uh, execution, but to be present for that uh, execution. So really strong support of the death penalty. Um, yeah, so he's really leaning into that sentiment and trying to take advantage of it. And if you combine that with welfare reform, you know, the roots of uh, problems in cities um, combined together, they're just devastating and really follow through on appealing to, you know, uh, sentiments that are bipartisan. And Nelson, you kind of see that back, you know, from when... Bill Clinton was a, an undergraduate in college. The, the, the willingness to, to, you could say, sell out some of his principles or compromise or modify his positions. It was there, you know, when he was running for class president, uh, as you show in the book. It was there when uh, he was active in politics in the 1970s. He kind of was able to adjust and readjust. Yeah, of course, as an undergraduate and then at, at Rhodes, at, as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, he was, uh, he was sort of in and around the movement and he he was like the roommates with people who are much more active, but he was not like a principal figure in the anti-war movement. Uh, earlier, by the way, the civil rights, he had been, I think, even shaped by the, the civil rights movement, and that was very important to him. He comes from Arkansas. Well, Arkansas is a southern state. Now, it's it's changing, uh, and to some degree, Clinton is part of a, a new generation of Democrats who are are trying to modernize Arkansas, certainly to create a certain industrial and, and educational infrastructure which you know advances it beyond the Jim Crow South, uh, but in that in the course of that, uh, Clinton is up against um, these very powerful the big big mules they call them in Arkansas, and and they're joined by by people like the the new Walmart fortune and the the Tyson fortune, and Clinton accommodates to that. So uh, from Arkansas, he for example, he's very he really really demonizes the uh, teachers association uh, in the course of of trying to raise taxes and and improve the educational system, but he does that in a, both the both the kind of using a kind of certain kind of uh, right wing rhetoric toward the teachers. And later on, of course, I think uh, he will basically best ignore 
and at worst uh, sort of just uh, pushed to the side uh, the the labor movement. And you know this is the this is a terrible period for the labor movement in the United States, no doubt about it. Uh, but uh, Clinton is not in, in in no way sees the the value of that uh, or the value of having a, a powerful labor movement. And nor do many of his more liberal aides. They were they didn't come out of the uh, out of the union movement. But with Biden today, it's somewhat different, somewhat different at least rhetorically. But but Clinton just uh, put that put all that to the side. And Nelson, it is hugely impressive the way he became the youngest governor, I think, in, yeah. is it a century or something? Uh, it, it was originally like a two-year term. Yeah. By the, in the 80s, it became a four-year term. But he lost, you know, in, I think it was the 1980. Yeah. And then, and that maybe made him reevaluate, you know, again, what he needed to do to yeah. to regain the, the governor's mansion and to make sure he kept getting yeah. re-elected. Yeah, he was a, an immensely talented figure, uh, no doubt about it. I think, I think rhetorically... Uh, uh, Equal of that of Obama, uh, and in some ways, in some ways, actually superior. He was had a warmth to him that Obama sometimes had a more austere aspect. Uh, yes, and he and he and he ran in '78 as a, a, a very much of a liberal and tried to put into effect various uh, uh, tax and regulatory uh, schemes, which then uh, he loses in 1980. And so again, this is the kind of the uh, a kind of dress rehearsal for his defeats <laughs> in the early 1990s. He moves to the right after his defeat in order to win again in, in 82. Clinton is nothing if not an opportunistic politician. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but uh, opportunism uh, it does not necessarily mean uh, being an absolute mendacious figure. It can mean finding those aspects of politics where you can make some advance and those that and, the, and those you can't. And then, and uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, and so Clinton uh, t- tries to, tries to always looking for the main chance. Uh, and I think in the late, in the late 80s in, in, in Arkansas politics, uh, as one uh, reporter said, every campaign speech was sort of a seminar on industrial development, on 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 how we can you know improve the the conditions of uh, of Arkansas uh, you know working people and industry. He was very much uh, interested in experiments in Europe and Japan uh, in terms of uh, industrialization, in terms of the the government guiding uh, you know investment, and that was something he tried to do in the early. Uh, years and months of, the, of his presidency, uh, tried to actually manage trade with Japan, uh, although he was a free trader with Mexico and China. But when it came to Japan, which in those days was the, the, the seemed to be the big uh, problem, uh, he very, very vigorously put uh, back the his trade negotiators who were trying to, you know, really kind of almost strong arm the Japanese into allowing American products into into that somewhat closed market. And Nelson, before we go to our break, do you think there was a mistake maybe in the the focus on on Japan and then to a certain extent with Germany that there was a big belief that these were the dominant powers because of their economies, that the future was going to be Japan and there was maybe a blind iron and neglect to some of the other real rising problems like you mentioned China or like Russia? Well, China would come along rather quickly, and, and, and it would become by the end of the nineties, the it, it, it becomes the major uh, uh, a, a trading, uh, one of the major trading uh, partners with the U.S., and also one of the major places where American uh, our, our offshoring industry. But no, I, I think that the Germany there, there are two aspects of Germany and Japan in this early period. Uh, one of the uh, Clinton's rivals for uh, the presidency in 1992, Paul Sangas, uh, had a famous uh, statement, the Cold War is over. Germany and Japan won. Now, what he meant by that was that the American model of a kind of Reaganite uh, laissez-faire capitalism was not working. And the more guided capitalism found in, in Germany and Japan was much more successful. Well, to a degree, that was that was true. Japan would have a, a big depression, of course, in the '90s, but Germany, uh, you know, did flourish. And th- what this represented was the uh, kind of ideological and political uh, rationale uh, argument for a more interventionist, uh, managed capitalism in the United States, which which many of Clinton's uh, uh, close aides and 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 appointees, not all of them by any means, but many some of them uh, tried to put forward in the early uh, part of his administration. Very good. Well, tonight we are talking history and we're talking about the presidency of Bill Clinton and the challenges to American liberalism from the 1960s to the end of the 1990s. We'll take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be exploring whether Bill Clinton was an accidental president and some of the challenges he faced. So stay with us here on News Talk.
Well, welcome back to Talking History. We're talking about the presidency of Bill Clinton and the challenges to American liberalism. I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Professor Nelson Lichtenstein, Research Professor in History at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and the author of the new book, A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism. Also joined in studio by Professor Patricia Sullivan, William Arthur Ferry II, Professor of History at the University of South Carolina, Professor Mary Ellen Curtin, who lectures at the American University in Washington, Washington, D.C., and on the phone by Dr. Daniel Geary, Mark Pickett Associate Professor in American History at Trinity College Dublin. Dan, can we talk about the 1992 election and to what extent Bill Clinton was an accidental president in that, you know, many thought that George Bush Sr. was unbeatable. He had, you know, the United States had won the Gulf War against Saddam Hussein. He was riding high in the opinion polls. Uh, Many Democratic candidates like Mario Cuomo decided not to run and and so in some ways he he entered the race in 1991 with with few people thinking he was actually going to be the candidate never mind going on to win the election that's true i mean it was a very uh, open democratic primary i suppose where many candidates and clinton emerged certainly as the most talented of them the most charismatic of the the leaders now in the general election it was a strange election because you had uh, a very serious independent candidate in ross perot at one point was uh, leading both other candidates in the polls and certainly took away voters who would have voted for uh, for both parties. I still think, though, that the, the Perot vote probably hurt Bush uh, in equal terms as Clinton. So I don't think Clinton you know, was necessarily lucky in that way, although he won a, a plurality of the popular vote, not, uh, not a majority. And Clinton, where he did get very lucky, I think, was in the, the timeline for when he faced uh, Bush, because certainly if the election had been held a year uh, earlier with the uh, Persian Gulf uh, War having been won, and Bush's popularity was, uh, it was, it was enormous. His approval ratings were, um, you know, in the 80% uh, and, and above, which is, would be unheard of in contemporary American politics. But the economy was really struggling in uh, 1992, and that certainly helped Clinton. And also, Bush had alienated much of the right wing of the Republican Party. I mean, one sign of a a sort of a weak incumbent president is that they face a serious primary challenge within their own party. And in 1992, Bush did face a serious primary challenge from Pat Buchanan, who uh, ran to his right and sort of stirred up discontent uh, with Bush's policies, which were viewed as too far to the center. And Dan, would you see him as a chameleon-like figure or someone who had a, a clear vision in 1992, or I suppose when he, when he took over then January 1993, a clear vision for what he wanted to do as president? I think, yeah, he's more of a, a chameleon-like figure. He's uh, someone who's a political opportunist, certainly not someone who is uh, driven by a consistent ideology. But that doesn't mean that he didn't have a clear sense of what he wanted to do when he took over. I mean, you know, politicians can get that from other places. And in 1992, obviously, Clinton made the economy the central issue of the campaign. Uh, and that is something that he uh, sought, sought to fix. Uh, and to that extent, you know, he looked to, uh, and uh, Nelson has certainly written and spoken about this, but he looked to many liberal ideas that were in the atmosphere. And as I said before, the liberals seemed to be doing pretty well in the Congress in the years before this. So even a political opportunist like uh, Clinton, having been elected on you know, fixing the economy, was very open to pursuing uh, liberal ideas about how to do that. And Nelson, it is interesting. The the focus was on the economy, but it's misremembered as as being the slogan. It's the economy, stupid, which was, of course, not an actual, you know, billboard poster campaign. And it was really just the internal messaging that James right. Carville had, where it was right. the economy, stupid. Yeah, the economy, stupid. And then just beneath beneath that was, and don't forget about healthcare. That was that was up there. But yeah, what the meaning of that was was this, because George Bush in his campaign was sort of uh, tr- well. Beginning, he wasn't very good at it, but trying to do a kind of culture war a denunciation of the Democrats, attacking uh, uh, Clinton as sort of a new left, a draft dodger, and whatnot, and and so and certainly uh, the Buchanan wing of the Republican Party doing that as well. So what what Carville was saying as a and he was the campaign manager is don't get into the into the the trenches or the or the or the catfight on those culture war issues. Don't do that. Stay with the economy. That's what you should do. And and what and what that meant was that that. 
while it was absolutely certainly true that, that Clinton had uh, had made these racial, very conservative, uh, reactionary racial kind of things with Sister Soldier, and as Pat said, uh, uh, make, going to, to to Arkansas to uh, uh, preside over the execution of, a, of, a, of an inmate there. When it came to the, the campaign, he stayed away from that. You know, he was, and and by the way, this was in the in opposition to a faction of the Democratic Party uh, known as the Democratic Leadership Council. That was kind of a conservative wing who thought the the key to Democratic victory would be culture war issues. You know, uh, they they were they wanted to push those things. Uh, they they wanted to de emphasize the economy. So the campaign was run in opposition to that. Uh, that uh, and 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 proved uh, actually in that campaign it it, it was somewhat successful. The, the Ross Perot vote was up for grabs, and one of the failures of Clinton was he didn't capture that vote, and that had to do with his trade policies. He he could have had he done that, there would have been a, a, a terrific Democratic majority if if you combine the Cl- uh, Clinton and Perot vote, but he failed to do that. So ultimately, I think the Republicans captured most of that Perot vote by the end of the decade. Mary Ellen, you're working on a new book on uh, Barbara Jordan, the Texas Congresswoman, and Bill Clinton awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He also, at one point, uh, claimed or suggested that he considered her for the Supreme Court of the United States, but her health wasn't uh, able for it. Uh, tell us about her, because I think she's a remarkable figure and helps us to understand maybe some of the challenges liberalism faced in the in the 1970s. Yes, thank you. Yes, yeah, she was a remarkable figure. And, uh, you know, she... Um, knew Bill Clinton from his time organizing for McGovern in Texas and really represents that first effort on the part of the civil rights movement and black power movement to really uh, bring new faces into the Democratic Party. So she's one of uh, a wave, I guess you could say, of uh, local representatives and then enters Congress in 72 along with uh, 15 other representatives, two from the South, the rest from the North. But what they have in common is that they're both challenging, both of these, the North and the South, they're challenging uh, the traditions of the Democratic Party. You know, there's a, there's bossism, there's segregation, there's the uh, conservative control of the party, and they really want to push it in a new direction. And they want to make black voters believe, you know, that social change really can come from participation in politics. And she's such a persuasive speaker. And, you know, she's only in Congress for six years, but she really makes her mark uh, during the Watergate crisis and then during the 1976 uh, Democratic Party convention, which is really coming off of the chaos of 68 and the defeat of 72, 76 was really seen, as your point before, as a time of hope, you know, when the party was really united around a, a, a Southern white candidate um, who they really did have the potential to regain the presidency. She couldn't, of course, there are limits to what one person can achieve, but I think she did pioneer a um, a way of thinking about politics that um, where the black vote is central, but also is part of a coalition that can really push the Democratic Party in a much more liberal direction. But that change is just going to take much longer than anyone could have imagined. And it's also going to take black politicians, you know, having real power in Congress. That means being in charge of committees. That takes time, too. And even with her election, though, it brought home just how few African-Americans were actually in Congress. Oh, yes. I mean, the numbers were minuscule. I mean, before 72, I think it was three. And then uh, 70, you get, uh, you know, the first in 68 and 70, you get Shirley Chisholm. When she goes in in 72, you actually, that's the first uh, cohort of black women. You have four black women entering in 72. So this is uh, also when the Congressional Black Caucus is formed. And it's really a time when uh, people are trying to figure out, right, what is this connection between movement politics and electoral politics and how can we merge these and how can we be, you know, a, a force in politics and within the party. And her health failed and she died in the 1990s. Shortly after she received that medal. And Bill Clinton spoke at her funeral as well. Yeah. What did she make of Bill Clinton's presidency? Was she disappointed by some aspects or? Uh, I, I, undoubtedly, yes. Um, but, at the, you know, certainly the Monica Lewinsky scandal, I think uh, many people had hoped, you know, that he would continue to move things in a more progressive direction. But I think, um, you know, in general, she would have definitely, you know, she spoke for Clinton in 92 and she tries to continue to promote the party as as a force for change. But it's still very, it's quite general. I'm not quite certain how she felt about his economic policies. To me, 
I don't think she would have been this third way. I, I think she's still more of a traditional Democrat where she would have seen government more as a, you know, you should be doing more for cities. You should be, you know, that there should be more direct um, assistance for black communities and for poor people. So I, I don't think she really embraced all of those um, kinds of reforms that he was uh, beginning to push towards. And her speech during the Watergate hearings received a huge amount of praise and a huge amount of attention. Why was that so significant? Well, I think because she was able to distill in eight minutes, which was half the time other people spoke, she was able to distill in eight minutes the primary reasons for why the president deserved to be impeached. And there was all kinds of uh, different arguments um, put forward, but she really focused on what it meant to, you know, wasn't high crimes and misdemeanors, you know, what did that mean? And it, it meant uh, violating the Constitution that you didn't need to necessarily be convicted of a crime in order to be impeached. This was the big uh, debate within the committee. That's what the conservatives were saying, that, you, you know, you needed enough evidence to be indicted. And she said, absolutely not that there was enough evidence here that he had subverted the Constitution, that he had lied, and that enough that was enough. Um, and there was such extensive evidence of that, that that was enough. And she was able to express that in very clear language and, as I said, very concisely. And, you know, also I think she was a very, she was a master of, of forms of rhetoric. Uh, Nelson, uh, Monica Lewinsky mentioned there the whole issue of what are were crimes and misdemeanors uh, reappears for Clinton then uh, in the 1990s. And what impact did that have on his presidency? Because it seems to have distracted him for a, a lengthy period. It, it forced him to align with the left in his party. It, it definitely forced a kind of a, a realignment. Yes. I mean, this is a, a, one of those uh, conjectures of history, which didn't have to happen, but did happen with lots and lots of consequences. Uh, way beyond the sexual scandal itself. Uh, first of all, in, uh, Clinton in his memoir calls 1998. That was the, the the year in which the scandal was at its height, uh, uh, kind of the strangest year in my presidency, and certainly was. Over the years, there have been dramatic late-night speeches from the White House, national tragedies and national triumphs, but nothing like the speech that we're about to hear from there tonight. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact... It was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. I misled people, including even my wife. I deeply regret that. He's in eclipse, and one could make an argument that the real president of the United States in 1998 is Robert Rubin, the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, who's very much a uh, Wall Street figure. Uh, and this is this is the year, really, when trade with China is open, when when the decision is made whether or not to support uh, Russia during a financial crisis, when when all sorts of issues come to the fore. And, and Robert Rubin is really the guy who's taking the lead, and Clinton is kind of in abeyance. He, Clinton takes lots and lots of foreign trips during 1998. But the most interesting thing I found about the Lewinsky scandal was this. Clinton had been, after uh, the uh, 1994, that when Newt Gingrich comes to power in the Congress, and then after 96, Clinton had been cutting all sorts of uh, uh, deals, triangulating uh, with the Republicans on all sorts of questions. He viewed it as survival for, to fight another day, but nevertheless, that was what was happening. Um, and one one deal that was on the on the table and was really almost uh, ready to go was a the beginning of privatization of Social Security, which is something that the, uh, the, the Republicans and Wall Street had been wanting to do for a long time. It it wasn't like complete privatization, but the beginning of that. And there were secret meetings with Newt Gingrich on this question. And it was all, it, it would seem to be set in a way uh, Clinton was going to endorse it. Well, when Le the Lewinsky scandal comes along and uh, Clinton is in both threatened and then impeached and then the trial in the Senate, who is Bill Clinton going to rely upon to defend him in the Congress? It's not the Joe Liebermans uh, and the conservatives in the Democratic Party, who, people who had been, who might have been in favor of this kind of uh, financial uh, uh, compromise with Republicans, it's going to be the left, the Barney Franks, uh, who is both an expert on finance and, of course, the first, I think, openly gay uh, representative. It's going to be Maxine Walters, who is a uh, fiery black militant from California. It's going to be all sorts of the left of the party. And so 
Clinton says, <laughs> he tells his conservative advisors he'd, he'd recruited them. He says, well, you know, I guess we just, we, we can't do it. I mean, I, I, if I'm going to survive, I need these people on my side. I've stiffed labor enough. I've stiffed the liberals enough. I need them. And so it, one can say, uh, and, and his conservative, uh, or, or some of his people said, Monica Lewinsky saved Social Security. And uh, Clinton uh, had to abandon this, this uh, another drift to the right because of that scandal. Yeah, so, so Nelson, uh, we don't need to go into the rights or wrongs or of, of the Monica Lewinsky saga, and we don't need to go into, you know, was there a, a vendetta or witch hunt against him? But the fact that it does show a certain recklessness in terms of his character, his behaviour, and what he was doing in the White House. Yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, and, and and all of his close friends absolutely were admonishing him on these on these issues uh, long before Lewinsky. But but yes, it, it, it just unnecessary exposure to scandal is is a, is a is part of the the game of politics. And Obama successfully avoided any of that uh, to his absolute absolute credit. Whereas Bill Clinton just stuck his chin out and his opponents attacked him. Uh, so it was, uh, uh, what can I say about the per- personality and politics? It's one of those things that, that is not subject to kind of some structural determination. It's, it's, a, it's personality and happenstance. And, and Clinton uh, found himself on the wrong side of that many times. And it's a, a part, of, part of his fabulous failure, if I could use that phrase. Patricia, your most recent book, that brilliant study of, of Robert Kennedy's America and the civil rights movement. When we look at the post-civil rights era, you know, these struggles around race and poverty and crime, you know, how does that change things in the in the 1980s and the 1990s? The challenges coming out of the 60s were huge. I mean, the civil rights movement accomplished a lot. And as has been pointed out, black voters helped to elect black candidates. But it also exposed the deep problems in cities where segregation had you know, grown up over the previous decades. And uh, we had major urban uprisings from 64 to 68. So the challenge of meeting that politically in a country that's sort of racially divided in many ways was great. I think you know, one of the great legacies of Dr. King and Robert Kennedy in response to the urban uprisings is reminding the country that law and order is not the answer, underlying conditions. Um, and But coming out of the 60s uh, with the election of Richard Nixon, who pursued a strict law and order policy, expand policing. And and that continues through the Reagan administration. I mean, Carter is not so aggressive on that front. So it's one of the challenges that Clinton faces. But I think when we look at the civil rights movement, I think of election of public officials of black, that's great. But these these deeper problems that are festering and getting worse, you know, how do you deal with that from a national level? And I think that the I mean, Clinton, so Clinton faced that challenge. And of course, with the contract with America, Newt Gingrich in 1994 and the great sweep of Republicans into office, it was significant. But I mean, leadership is about you have to be opportunistic and ambitious to to get there and stay there. But then, you know, what are you going to fight on? And not only didn't he not fight, he sort of caved in. And I think um, so those conditions, you know, that Kennedy and King and people in the late 60s saw as the real ongoing challenge in the struggle for racial justice in this country, you know, worsened with using policing as a response to urban poverty. And during the Clinton era, the combination of the crime bill in 1994, which $9.7 billion into expanded policing, some money into reform efforts, but and then the welfare bill two years later. And again, I mean, politically, that might have seemed something he needed to do, but it, it you know, coming out of this history, it, so I think we see elected black officials, but the problem of incarceration, urban poverty is just escalating. And that challenge sort of remains that was, was raised in the, in the 60s in important ways. Okay, well, tonight we are talking about the presidency of Bill Clinton and the challenges uh, facing American liberalism. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be assessing his impact. We'll be looking also at the impact of Hillary Clinton and where she fits into some of these discussions. And we'll be assessing then the legacy of Bill Clinton. That's all coming up on Talking History after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we assess the presidency of Bill Clinton in terms of the challenges to American 
Channel Liberalism. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Nelson Lichtenstein, Daniel Geary, Professor Patricia Sullivan and Professor Mary Ellen Curtin. Dan, where does uh, Hillary Clinton fit into these discussions then? Because she's usually seen as someone who was on the left of the Democratic Party, you know, someone who was campaigning against the death penalty in the 1970s, uh, was involved in those Watergate hearings, you know, had, the, had these very impressive liberal credentials. But as time went on, came to be seen then as being on the right of the Democratic Party. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, you know, by the time you get to 2016 against Bernie Sanders, even 2008, I suppose, in the in the Democratic primary, she is on the right of the party. But, you know, she's obviously an important part of Bill Clinton's political project. And that was clear at the time. And, and Bill Clinton even said, you know, if you elect me, you get two for the price of one. In other words, you know, you'll get Hillary as well as me as your as your leader. And she was a very different kind of uh, first lady, really. And in that sense, a symbol of feminism and of changing roles uh, for women in politics. I mean, she famously said she wasn't going to be like Barbara Bush, the first lady before her and Bay Cookie. She was going to be involved, you know, with the policy and with the politics. Uh, and that was very significant at the time. And it's something that was, um, you know, very much denounced, I suppose, by conservatives. And Mary Ellen, Hillary Clinton becomes a target for those who, who are uncomfortable or opposed to uh, women getting more rights and being more involved in politics. And, you know, there, there are mistakes Hillary Clinton made, but then there are other things that she's unfairly targeted for. Yeah, I think, boy, these are shifting sands. I mean, when you think about the, you know, Ann Richards uh, speech at the Democratic Convention, you know, there was a real uh, enthusiasm, you know, for prominent women in the Democratic Party. And I think Hillary Clinton was really, you know, as a wife, you know, she was she was not where she wanted to be. I mean, she obviously wanted to be uh, a candidate, you know, and, and a politician, uh, which she later on went on to be. So I, I think she's just really caught in these um, transitional roles, you know, and where people don't really want to see uh, there's a there's a place for the quote unquote first lady, you know, which is very unusual in American politics. I don't think any other nation, you know, has that kind of expectation of of the the spouse of a of a of an elected leader like that. But there is a role and she was stepping out of it. And I think that was the very difficult uh, thing for to do. And yes, yeah, she became a target. And also, but on the other hand, if she's going to take on this role of um, promoting this uh, health care policy, then she, she really did have to work with Congress. And there was all kinds of criticism of the way that she kind of kept cards close to her chest and didn't really reach out to the, didn't act as a Congress person, you know, would have, which is you have to build relationships. You have to get people on your side. You have to do all those things that apparently was very difficult for um, her and, and her cohort to do. Yeah, Nelson, who's to blame for that going wrong? Was it that uh, Bill Clinton had handed it over to people who probably didn't know how to make those deals and compromises that were necessary? Or was there always going to be a kind of a Republican backlash to the new president? Well, here I am, a bit of a structuralist. Uh, and I think that, uh, of course, there were all sorts of mistakes made. The Republican Party was moving to the right, although, although there were elements of the party that were in favor of a compromise. But I think here that the Clintons misjudged the character of American capitalism they, for all their uh, new 1990s kind of ethos, they thought that the the, the really big players in in America were the the old industrial corporations, the the big the Fords and General Motors and U.S. Steels and things of that sort, and this you know important fraction of capital, and they understood this. They were not ignorant about this. Was in favor of of a health care reform because it would save them a lot of money. Uh, in effect, it, they, they were they were paying for the health care of the people who were for the Walmarts and the uh, and the Pizza Huts and whatnot, and the Clintons had a good relationship with uh, this fraction of capital. You know, very uh, kind of uh, unionized often, and uh, wanted this reform as a way of, frankly, competing with uh, with Japan and, and Germany. But it turned out that who was on the ascendant in the 1990s? It was the service sector. It was low wage franchises. It was uh, all sorts of uh, kind of financialization, financial elements that were. You know, either militantly opposed to the health care plan or not. And so we have a situation in the early uh, 1994 in which the uh, um, the Republican Party 
uh, is lobbying. The Republican Party is lobbying business associations to come out against the Clinton plan, not the other way around. Um, and uh, for a variety of reasons, they were successful. So I think that, of course, there are mistakes made. And part of the rhetoric of the denunciation of the plan was, oh, it's complicated and, and this and that. But but really, it, I mean, it was complicated. But but I think the, the fundamental thing here uh, was a kind of misjudgment of where power really lay uh, in the economy. And Obama would not make that mistake. He cut more deals, <laughs> did more uh, accommodations than Clinton did. Bill Clinton described himself, Nelson, as a bridge to the 21st yeah. century, but I'm not entirely sure he succeeded in, in terms of the issues that, that we're talking about in tonight's show in terms of, of, of liberalism, uh, the economy, you know, civil rights and, uh, yeah. and so on. You know, there are successes, but in terms of, of the ones that we've been focusing on, uh, the economy, healthcare, all of these issues, he wasn't really that bridge that he claimed he would be. No, he wasn't because uh, at, towards the end of the uh, administration, Clinton and all sorts of others, including Newt Gingrich and, and his opponents, they were absolutely uh, entranced by and taken in by the, the idea that we have a new economy, uh, which is basically Silicon Valley. And this would sort of resolve by itself all the old social conflicts and all the old problems, you know, uh, if we just staked everything on the new economy. So deregulation of telecommunications, sure, no problem. Deregulation of uh, finance, no problem, because this new economy meant that all the old rules, all the old conflicts uh, were, were, were gone. A tr- tremendous illusion. And I think that's partly what Clinton meant by bridge to the 21st century. I'm going to put, I'm going to stake everything on this so-called new economy. And I think this t- turned out to be an uh, absolute mistake. Uh, we, we ended up with uh, with the dot-com bust <laughs> in 2000. And then we ended up, of course, with the big uh, financial bust in 2008 and 2009. So uh, th- that, was, that was not the bridge. <laughs> and uh, Clinton himself and some of his close advisors would, would say a certain kind of mea culpa by 2008 and 2009. And finally then, Nelson, do you think the fact that Al Gore lost when he probably should have won yeah. in 2000, that that was really a, a signal or a sign of how people were viewing the Clinton presidency, that someone who was going to continue on this legacy instead found that the Democratic coalition and movement was badly fractured and unable to beat George W. Bush? Well, Gore himself I think made a mistake. He was timid. He didn't actually uh, ally himself with Clinton. Now, Clinton still had an enormous, uh, uh, did have some great support. In, in the After 1998, the Democrats, in effect, won that, that midterm election. Uh, Gore chose Joe Lieberman as his vice president, who was among the most conservative uh, of, of, the, of the Democratic Party uh, and that element of the Democratic Party that wanted to play culture war games, which is really Republican terrain. So uh, Gore did not have to lose. And of course, he did win the popular vote. Uh, but again, it's the, again, here, the structure of American electoral uh, politics and the electoral college uh, mitigates, was mitigated against liberals and the left in this period. And finally, Nelson, just uh, uh, to sum up, A Fabulous Failure is the title of your book when it came to the, the challenges facing American liberalism. How should we view Clinton as someone who faced serious challenges but was unable to overcome them or or just this failure? Well, I think he, 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 did, he put certain issues on the agenda initially, which were important. And the Biden administration, to some degree, uh, is carrying forward some of the earlier, early ideas of the Clinton period that is, efforts to sort of manage capitalism through a kind of industrial policy. That's one thing that was that was put forward and then abandoned. Uh, but otherwise, Clinton is a kind of cautionary tale about the accommodation of, of American liberals to, to Wall Street and to a kind of a unfettered free trade. And I think that that's also a lesson that the American uh, liberalism, and including the Biden administration, is learning today. Well, I think that's an excellent note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to Professor Nelson Lick Stein of the University of California, Santa Barbara. My thanks also to Dr. Daniel Geary, Mark Piggott, Associate Professor in American History at Trinity College Dublin, Professor Patricia Sullivan, William Arthur Ferry, the second Professor of History at the University of South Carolina, and Professor Mary Ellen Curtin of the American University in Washington, D.C. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.